Well, let's study God's Word together. We're in week two of the book, of our book of Hebrews series this week called Better. And uh, today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 18. So grab a Bible um, or a device, your phone, uh, tablet, whatever it may be. I want to encourage you to always have the scriptures there. We'll have the scripture on the screen for you, but love for you to have the, your own scripture there. Maybe a translation that you normally read. I'm teaching out of the English Standard Version, so that's what will be on the screen for you um, today. And so let me ask you a question that you can't answer, obviously, but you can kind of answer it to yourself. Uh, do you like road trips? You know, there tends to be two types of people, those that like road trips and those that absolutely uh, despise road trips. And, and I like a road trip uh, from time to time, but the one thing about living in Central Florida is, you know, every now and then we'll have a conversation about, actually hear this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, my wife and I have had this conversation about how much fun it would be to do like a cross-country trip and like see Mount Rushmore or uh, go see the Grand Canyon and things of that nature, things that we haven't been to. And, and I'll get to thinking, well, it would take us the better part of a day just to get to Mississippi, right? Um, not really anything there I'm looking to see, and uh, but it, that's the kind of the negative to living in central Florida, right? Or, or, you know, when you live this far down, it just takes a long time just to get to a, another state. And the thing about road trips are, that when you take those long trips, um, you do get to see other stuff that you wouldn't normally get to see if you were to fly. Um, so there's some advantages to them. They can be fun because of that, right? You're going to listen to more music and have more conversations than you might would normally have. But there are negatives to road trips as well, right? They can be dangerous, right? You're only, I mean, just, it's just, it's a, a it can be a dangerous way to travel. They can be more tiring. Um, uh, it, uh, there's more challenges uh, that, that can come into play uh, if you're going on a long uh, two, three, four day sort of road trip. And, you know, I've still got a lot of uh, family back in North Alabama and Christy and I know what it's like to road trip with a baby or with a potty training toddler. Uh, road trips can be more stressful. Uh, but I want to kind of make this comparison. The Christian life is a bit like a road trip. And here's what I mean. We are on a way to a destination. We have left something behind, right? An old life. And we are traveling, but we have yet to get to our ultimate destination. Uh, we, we, we are kind of in, in, in an in-between time. By God's grace, we're sure to get there, right? We've been saved, uh, but, we, uh, but there's a finality uh, that, we've, that we've yet to get to. Uh, we're saved, but we still struggle with sin. Uh, we still battle trials and temptations. And in this world, we experience God's grace, but this world at the same time is broken, right? So we kind of live in this tension. Uh, the new heaven and the new earth is a sure thing that we know as believers in Christ, we're going to be a part of. But we can look around. We can turn on the news and we know, this is bad grammar, but it's good theology. This ain't it right? This ain't it. This is not the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, we, we're kind of living in this uh, tension here. We're kind of on this road trip, if you will. And if I were to say to you today, Jesus is on the throne, you know, the folks that like to amen would say amen, and, and, and we would be right. I would amen that. But maybe you've wondered sometimes, then why are things so hard? Why do, why do things seem to be so bad sometimes? Why do bad things happen? Why are things so rough? Because there's a tension that we're living in called the, uh, theologians call it the already not yet. Believers are assured of heaven and final salvation, but we've not yet er entered heaven. And we are still being matured into Christ's likeness. Uh, God is in control. Christ is seated on the throne. He is reigning in authority, but we do not yet see the full ramifications of all that. Christ's kingdom has been, the way we say it is, it has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. We await that consummation. And in this world, 
it's very easy to get frustrated, to get down, to get discouraged. Uh, you, you can, you can uh, go read the news or go on social media um, or turn on your TV and for a matter of seconds and you'll find a reason to be discouraged. In fact, as we said last week, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews had likely been persecuted and some had grown shaky in their faith. And a major theme of this book is to continue on with Jesus, to hold on to him in this journey as we journey towards ultimately an eternity with him in God's presence. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, the author continues with this idea of, of Jesus' superiority, right? Uh, him being better than the angels that we talked about last week. And he continues to point us to Jesus. And today we see the importance of this topic, seeing Jesus. The importance of seeing Jesus while we're, while we're on this journey, while we're in this in-between time. Not literally, but spiritually. Beholding him for who he is and all he is during this season, this already not yet, because that's what's going to help us in this journey. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to kind of go chunk by chunk today, and I'll give you some points as we go. Uh, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll read through verse 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So let's pause there in our passage here. We, we will see three big themes that start here in verses 5 through 9 and will continue throughout the rest of the chapter of Jesus' exaltation, his suffering, and his incarnation. The fact that Jesus is God who has become man, right? The fact that Jesus suffered and died on the cross and the fact that Jesus is exalted and seated at the right hand of God. These themes are throughout the rest of chapter 2 and you see them right here in, these, um, in, in verses 5 through 9. Nine, that Jesus is this, he's the exalted son of God who has become man, the God man, died on the cross for sinners and has rescued us from sin, death, and hell. And so that, that's major themes that we see at play here. And all through the book of Hebrews, the author wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to see Jesus. Or as he says over in chapter 12, uh, he says, uh, consider Jesus. Um, and he, he'll, he'll, even, he'll even say that um, in chapter 3, this idea of consider Jesus, see Jesus, think on Jesus. In a fallen world, in a world where we are tempted to grow weary, and in a world where God has sent Jesus, his son, as our only hope of salvation, it is of paramount importance that we see Jesus, uh, that we understand who he is and what he has done, that we see him in his incarnation, in his suffering, and in his exaltation. And I think this passage and these truths help teach us three very important truths about Jesus that we need to see today as we see these themes, okay? So the first one is this. Number one, we need to see that Jesus reigns over all. We need to see that Jesus reigns over all. It's not to angels to whom God has subjected the world to come, the writer says. See, you're, you're aren't gonna you and I, we're not going to stand before angels. We're not going to answer to angels or serve angels or, or worship angels. Angels will not rule. Then who? Well, he's pointing to Jesus. There's coming a day when he will rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth. The author quotes here in verses 6 and 7, he quotes Psalm 8. 
this uh, psalm is a psalm about uh, humanity and Adam and humanity and this uh, idea uh, where the psalmist is marveling about how God is mindful of humans. Um, how, and then he applies that psalm, Psalm 8, to Jesus as the Son of Man, right? And so you can talk about Son of Man in a generic sense of being human. But then there's the Son of Man that you see um, like in places like Daniel chapter 7, a messianic title for the one who we ultimately see in the New Testament uh, is God who has become man, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so as God's creation, mankind, you and I, are meant to be stewards, right? We live in this fallen world, imperfect, awaiting a better reality and seeking to be good stewards of our lives and of the creation uh, that God has put around us. But here he applies Psalm 8 to Jesus, the Son of Man, right? That Daniel 7 title and there and in other places um, is the one who will rule and reign over the world. He says in verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. I believe he's talking about Christ or outside of Christ's control. And one of the first things we need to see here is that nothing is left outside of Christ's control. Do you see that? He's the sovereign king. Every earthly power is one day going to bow the knee to Jesus. Every knee will bow, as Philippians says, Apostle Paul writes, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the king of all kings. I mentioned last week, uh, he's the sustainer of the universe. He teaches us that at the beginning of uh, Hebrews chapter 1. He holds the world together. Here we see as the king of all kings, he reigns over all and nothing is being left out of his control. And now if this is true, of course I believe it is, and we, the, the Bible tells us it is, then this is of paramount importance because it means that what we do with Jesus matters and it matters in a sense that we can't possibly fully fathom it means whether we obey Jesus or not is of extreme importance it means it's urgent it means there are serious consequences if we ignore Jesus he says he is crowned with glory and honor yes he was born God the son has taken on human flesh he was born yes he suffered yes he died but he was raised to life and he has been crowned with glory and honor the honor the, the writer is reminding us that though Jesus came and though Jesus suffered and though Jesus died, Jesus has arisen and Jesus is on the throne. He reigns. He reigns over all. But there's a tension in the text. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the tension. Jesus and his kingdom have been, as we said at the beginning in our introduction, inaugurated, but we await the consummation. So as we await his return, we still see sin. We still see brokenness. We still see unrighteousness. We still, we still see unjust things that happen because the perfect king, the true king, has not returned. Uh, this is the already not yet tension that we're talking about here. In this sort of between time where mankind, uh, we're in this sort of between time and, and in this time, we're in a time where mankind is in rebellion to God. In rebellion to God. So what does that mean for you and I? If you're a believer in Christ today, uh, we have come under submission to the true king. So while mankind is in rebellion to God, we are supposed to be submitted to God, submitted to Christ. We know the reality. We know the future. We know who Jesus is. And our lives should tell the world, submit now before it's too late. We're the people that understand that he is seated, that he has come, he has died, he has arisen, he is seated at the right hand of God. And he's coming back. 
And he's going to rule and reign and everyone's going to answer to him. And so our lives should trumpet, should declare to others, flee to him before it's too late. Submit to him before it's too late. Just imagine if you were to uh, pull up to a store and, and you were to see people running out of the store and, and screaming, fire, 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 run. And people are fleeing the store. Are you going to sashay in there? Right? Are you just going to kind of go in? Well, I've really got to pick up these three things. I mean, you know, I, I told my spouse I was going to pick up these three things. So I've really got to. No, you're going to stay far away from that place. You're not going in when you see people running out. Right? Why? Because you've been warned. You've been warned of a reality uh, that you wouldn't have known about if they didn't tell you. Something that maybe you couldn't fully see, but, but these people, man, they, they've seen something. And they're coming out and they're telling you about it. Similarly, our lives should be a warning. A warning that this world is <laughs> it's out of whack. And it has fallen and it is broken. And it is sinful. And there are consequences. And that rebellion against God is evil. That rejection of Christ is horrible and tragic. And our obedient lives submitted to Christ as those who love God and as those who love neighbors he's called us to should declare to the world that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Flee to him. Submit to him. He's king. He's savior. And you need to run to him. Not money, not power, not Caesar, not success, but flee and submit to Jesus. Jesus is reigning. This is reality. But we don't see the full implications of it yet. We still see suffering pain, sin, and so forth. But we do not see it yet. And that's the key to the passage. We do not see it yet. In other words, it's coming. (laughs) We do not see it yet, but it's coming. And in the meantime, he says in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we do see Jesus and he's crowned with glory and honor having been raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand. The Messiah, the one who's fulfilled all the, the prophecies of the Old Testament has done all that's supposed to be done who has fulfilled the requirements of the law. And now don't miss this in this text and in verse nine which I think is kind of the heart of it here. Don't miss this, cross and crown. Cross and crown. Jesus humbled himself, came here, suffered and died, but now he's exalted. But, but the, the, he, he, he left glory. He came here to die for us and be raised from the dead. But, and he's, now he's back and he's exalted, name above all names. But he followed the path, the mission that God had for him, which was suffering and then exaltation. And similarly, now you and I as his followers, we suffer. But one day, we will be with him in glory experiencing the consummation of his reign. Like Jesus, we suffer now, but we get glory later. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, uh, verses 11 and 12 say this, this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Did you get that? We will also reign with him. Let the Let the fact that Jesus is on the throne, even when it doesn't feel like it at some point in this life, remind you that one day you will be with him in glory, even when it doesn't feel like it at some point in this life. Jesus is reigning. We need to see that, hold to that. Number two, we need to see that Jesus represents us before God. You know, one of the things that is happening with the quotation of Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8 here of chapter 2 is that the writer is taking the, the, this psalm about humanity and he's applying it to Christ, as I mentioned earlier. 
that Jesus, as he says, was for a little while made lower than the angels. That speaks to his incarnation and his, and his suffering and his death, or as they talk about the humiliation of Christ. And Hebrews 1 reminded us that Jesus came to represent God to us, right? Uh, God has spoken finally and supremely, as we said last week, through his son, Jesus. So he comes and he, he reveals to us God. He represents, in a sense, God to us because he is God, the son. But one thing Hebrews 2 reminds us of is that Jesus represents us before God. He is the, the second or, the, as they say, the last Adam. Adam was the first man and thus a representative for all of humanity. As Psalm 8 teaches, he was given authority as a steward of creation. All mankind was to represent God in some fashion on earth as his image bearers. Adam was given responsibility to obey God and to tend the garden, right? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and you, can, and you can read this story. But Adam failed. He failed. He rebelled against God. He sinned against God. And now Jesus has come, right? And unlike the first Adam who failed, he has not failed. He was given a mission by God. He was given a purpose by God. And he has perfectly obeyed God and perfectly accomplished the mission God has given F.F. F. Bruce says it this way. I love the way he writes it, the, the late F.F. F. Bruce. He says, when one person fails in the accomplishment of the divine purpose, God raises up another to take his place. But who could take the place of Adam? Only one who was capable of undoing the effects of Adam's fall and thus ushering in a new world order. See, not just anyone. So imagine this way, like if you've been given a mission, something to go and something to do. And if you don't and if you if you don't think you could do it, you might could find someone else to accomplish that mission for you, right? You find someone and say, "Well, I can't do it, but they can do it and they can go do that for me." But here's what you can't do. You can't fail on the mission and then find someone who can do that for you and undo the fact that you failed, right? Your failure's still there. Uh, it, it, it's just there. Imagine like if the mission was the, 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 to rescue the people in the burning building that I told you about earlier, right? That You don't get a second chance. You'd need a, you'd need a person that could do the mission before you failed at it. But in Christ... God has sent the only one who could come and undo, as F.F. F. Bruce says, the effects of Adam's fall, the effects of our sin. Uh, not, not just do it for us, but undo the brokenness, undo um, the, the consequences that have come into the world, to come and undo so that there can be a new heaven and a new earth and so that things can be renewed. Jesus is our representative, making it so men, women, boys, and girls can come back to God and can be who God has created us to be. Look further with me. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Let's read verses 9 through 13. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We're going to talk about this. That's one way he represents us. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
So let's talk about some ways he represents us. We see here he represents us so he could be our substitute. He tasted death for everyone, he says in verse 9. Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live and then died the death that I and you, me and you, deserved to die. He tasted death for us. He took our sin, bore God's wrath that he might save us. The one better than the angels, remember? Better than the angels, the one superior to all, the supreme one. God's own son tasted death. For everyone, for sinners, for people like us. The fact that he came and tasted death, that alone is like, whoa, 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 whoa. The eternal son of God entered into the world and tasted death? Came, came, took on human flesh and tasted death? I mean, that's mind-blowing enough. But then when you say for everyone, in other words, it was a substitute. It was for sinners. It was in our place taking the death we deserve. That is what we call grace. That's why he actually says, by the grace of God, that he might taste death for everyone because that is the very heart of grace that Jesus would take our place. He didn't simply die to show you how to suffer well. Yes, we look at Jesus and we learn, we can see how to suffer well. He died to save us from our sins and to make it so that one day we'd never have to suffer and that, that no believer would ever have to suffer the ultimate suffering, which is suffering the wrath of God. And he represents us so he could be our founder and our champion. He, he says here, uh, he, he talks about him being the founder of their salvation. It was fitting that he, whom, for whom, by whom all things exist, and bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, that word founder, or um, it can also be translated um, um, pioneer or originator. Um, one scholar said it could be called, uh, it could be translated champion. Uh, Jesus came as our representative and he, he paved the way for our salvation. He, he's our champion. He has won victory for us. He is our pioneer. He has paved the way. He went before us and paved the way so that you and I can be saved. He is the founder. He's the only reason we, there is a salvation for us. He reminds us here that God is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. That, in other words, life, as we said last week, is about God. We are made. You are made. Maybe you just tuned in. Maybe you've been not paying attention for a second. Maybe you zoned out. Look right here. You are made to know God. And you are made to love God. And you are made to worship God and to serve God and to make much of God. That's why you're on the planet. More than anything else, this trumps all. You're made to know and love and worship God, your creator. And Jesus makes it possible for us to be brought into that reality. To bring sons to glory, as he says. That pioneer, the champion, the founder, he would have to be made perfect through suffering. Made perfect through suffering does not mean that Jesus sinned. Let me read to you a couple of quotes that will help explain what he means by Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Al Mohler, Dr. Al Mohler says this, the phrase made perfect refers to Jesus' unflinching submission to the Father in the face of escalating difficulties, even going to the cross. Uh, George Guthrie writes this, perfection in Hebrews has to do with fully completing a course, main, uh, maintaining it to the end of God's plan, taking it to the end, accomplishing God's plan. Even in the face of suffering, even in the face of death, even on a cross, Jesus accomplished exactly what God sent him to do. He was faithful He's our champion, our hero, our pioneer. He did this for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he represents us, listen, so he could be our sanctifier. He says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Talks about that Jesus sanctifies us. He 
purifies us. He makes us holy, in other words. He, he removes our sin. The only one who could stand in our place that could do that is Jesus. And he, he has come to represent us so that he could sanctify us, purify us, so he can make you holy. And as our representative, he is our brother. He became one of us. He could own human flesh, the God-man. He's not ashamed, the writer says. You see that? To call us brother. How amazing is that? That God the Son calls us brother. That the Son of God brings us into the family of God. That he calls us brother. That he's, that he, that he's willing to associate with us. That he was willing to, to come down to us, so to speak, so that he could bring us up to God, so to speak. That he is willing to call us brother. That he was willing to become like us, to, to die for us and to reconcile us to God. And that leads us into our next section. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that God, uh, excuse me, it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He says, since the children share in flesh and blood. Who's the children? That's you and I, right? It's the children God has given him that he quotes from the Old Testament earlier in the last passage. Those He's unashamed to call brothers. Since they are human, since we are human beings, he became a human being. He became like us, brothers in every respect. He is just like us in every way, but without sin. He is a man, but at the same time, he is God. He was tempted, but he did not sin. Look, he didn't come to help angels, but Abraham's offspring, God's people. So he didn't become an angel. He became a man. He is God who has become man while remaining God. He is the God-man, the incarnation and the deity of Christ. Understanding that, that Jesus is God who has become man, that, that he is fully man and fully God is incredibly important truths. In fact, Recently, I've heard some crazy surveys that were done. Uh, Lifeway did one for Legionnaire and, and just found just some, I mean, insane things to think about, uh, about who in our country calls themselves evangelicals. Um, and, and if you're an evangelical, you're supposed to be someone who believes the gospel. You're supposed to be someone who is um, orthodox in your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But listen to this. In this survey, they found that one-third of professing evangelicals said they believed Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. Do you understand that you can't be a Christian and deny the deity of Jesus? One third of evangelicals say he's a good teacher, but he's not God. 65% said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Hebrews and John chapter 1 and so many places refute this. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's eternal God the Son. He is one with God. He has always existed. He has always been. And at a moment in time, he became a man. He didn't come into existence, he became a man. God the Son clothed himself in human flesh while maintaining his deity. And these, uh, these things these, the, that we saw in the survey, they're heresies. Listen, Jesus is God who became a man while remaining God, and that's a big deal. 
So these things that we come to in Hebrews, and you wonder like, you know, what does this mean for my everyday life? Well, this, this is about eternity. <laughs> this is about understanding who Jesus is. And if life's about God, life's about Jesus, and the most important thing is to know him, you need to know who he is. We know who he is. He's the God-man. Anything other than that is heretical. A Jesus that's not fully divine or that's not fully human is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It's important we understand that in the incarnation, God became a man. And here's why, our third point. Only Jesus can rescue us from our plight. Only Jesus can rescue us from our plight. See, we have a plight due to the fall, due to our sin, that only Jesus can rescue us from. You know, if, if you were to have an emergency, you would only t- tend to call 911 if it's like a real emergency, right? Like you don't pick up the phone and call 911 because you're out of groceries or because you need a ride somewhere, right? You, you, you'd call a friend for that. And there's even some things that we might would kind of consider important or sort of like emergencies that we would call friends or family or neighbors for. We only call 911 like when we, we got to have the police or we've got to have an ambulance. Like it is an emergency and they're the only ones that can help. But listen, here's my point. There is no one else that we can call to, no one else we can look to, to rescue us from our plight but Jesus. Our, we, we can't dial up our righteousness or our effort or, or any of those things in order to rescue us from our plight. We can't be good enough, sincere enough, or moral enough, or religious enough. Only Jesus. We need to call on Jesus. And listen to how he talks about his rescue of us here in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. He rescued us by defeating Satan. He he destroyed the one with the power of death, that is the devil. Listen, this is the, 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 what was proclaimed to was going to be done all the way back at the beginning of the book of the books of the Bible in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall of man, uh, when God talks about the curse, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, the serpent, who we know to be the devil. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the promise, that there is a coming one that's going to undo what you've done, Satan, he's gonna, who's going who's gonna to destroy your work. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he has done so. He has done so. Satan roams the earth, but he does so defeated by Jesus Christ. So one person I read this week says he he roams it with a limp. And he absolutely does. He rescues us. by He's defeated defeated Satan and and what he brought uh, upon the world. And at the same time, he rescued us by delivering us from the fear of death. Uh, believers have been delivered set free from the fear of death we still die in this life but we don't have to fear it the other side of death for the believer is not hell it's life with God let me ask you do you fear death you don't have to in Jesus you can be delivered from that fear he says he entered into death he tasted it and he rose again so that when you die you can have peace when you die you can know that waiting for you on the other side is the one who has defeated death that you can know that ultimately that you're going to be to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord and that ultimately there's going to be a resurrection and you're going to get a glorified body and you're going to spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with God. That's not some weird pie in the sky stuff. That's the Bible. That's what we believe. That's, that's the destiny of the believer. He rescues us from the fear of death and he rescues us from God's wrath. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest, he says. Now, the high priest was the one in the Old Testament that you would read about who made sacrifices for sin. He was, he was one of the people, 
right? He was one of the people. He come from the people. And he would represent them before God and make sacrifices on their behalf for their sins. This is a major thing that we're going to learn more about in Hebrews in weeks to come. But he says he did this so he, he who, who, um, who, so who, who has said he's a merciful and faithful high priest who has made propitiation for the sins of the people. So as our high priest, he has made propitiation. That's the word, fancy Bible word that we've come to at North Park several times as we go through the New Testament. He's made propitiation for the sins of the people. That word means that he has satisfied God's justice. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross, the sinless son of God who represented you and I on that cross. He took the wrath we deserve, bearing what we deserve, satisfying the just demands of God. It's our propitiation turning God's wrath to favor for you and I. And he did this willingly for our good and for God's glory. You know what that means, church? It means you're loved by Jesus. It means you're loved by Jesus, passionately loved by Jesus. He became like us to die for us, and only he can rescue us from this plight of suffering God's wrath for our sin. And he rescues us. He rescues us. Here's the last thing. He rescues us in our trials and temptations. Because Jesus, he says, has suffered when tempted. He is able to help us when we are tempted. That word tempted is, is neutral. It can refer both to trials and temptations. Jesus went through trials like you and I, right? But he was also tempted like you and I, but only he did not sin. We've talked about this before, but that means his temptation was different because he never gave in. Like you and I, we give in at some, have given in at some point. Tempted, 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 tempted. Ah, I gave in. Tempted, tempted, gave in. Tempted a really long time, oh, gave in, right? Jesus, tempted, 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 never gave in. And then he died for us on the cross. He went to the cross, died for us, and is now resurrected from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us as our high priest. Listen, he rescues us, not by taking the trials and the temptations away in this life. No, he comes to our aid. He helps us. He helps us endure the trials. He helps us to resist temptation when we rely on him, when we trust him, when we walk with him, when we obey him, when we seek his help. And he can help us kill the sin that we struggle with. And listen, one day, and here's the great promise, one day he will absolutely ultimately rescue us from all trials and there will be no more of them and all sin. That's the work of our amazing high priest We'll learn more about him as our high priest in the weeks to come. So church, see Jesus. See Jesus, our king, our savior, our brother, our high priest. He reigns, he represents us, and yes, him and only him can rescue us. And as we await in this in-between time, as we await the consummation of his reign, let's worship him and obey him because that's how you respond to one who is the reigning king. Let's trust him because he's the only one who has taken our place and, and offers us rescue from sin, death, and hell. And let's remember that there's going to be a day where we're with him and the troubles of this world are far behind. So remember and hold on to him in all seasons. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you trusted him to take your sin away, to forgive your sin? Have you trusted him as your representative, taking your sin on the cross, taking God's wrath for you and being raised from the dead? Have you trusted him? Have you put your faith in him? Is he reigning over your life right now as Lord and as king? Has he rescued you from your sin? He could do so right now. 
The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If, if it's never happened, if you'll turn away from your sin and turn to Christ and embrace him as Lord and Savior, if you'll put your faith and trust in him today to save you, believing he died for you and he rose from the dead, he can save you right now. He will save you if you'll earnestly call on him, look to him in repentance and faith. Believer in Christ, are you living in obedience to him? Are you seeking his help in your trials and temptations? When this world makes you weary, are you seeing him? Beholding him? Looking to him? Remembering his incarnation, his suffering, his glory? Remembering that he reigns and he represents us and that he rescues us? Are you holding to him? See, in the forefront of your mind's eye, listen, if you make a decision to follow Christ today, or if you've got questions about following Christ, would you email us at info at gonorthpark.com? I'd love to talk with you, pray with you, celebrate with you if you make a decision to follow Christ. Or if you're a believer today and you're struggling or you need prayer, same email, info at gonorthpark.com. We would love to pray with you, partner with you in any way we can in your journey to know Christ, to become like Christ, and to make Christ known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great King, our great high priest, our, our brother, the one who came and took on human flesh that he might become like us, that he might die for us and be raised from the dead. Help us to see him, Lord. Help us to see him in this time when, when we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, as the writer says. Help us to see him who is crowned with glory and honor, who suffered, who tasted death for all of us, but who is resurrected from the dead. Help us to see him, Lord. Help us to behold him. Help us to, to follow him. Help us to remember what he's done. Help us to be encouraged by it and to build our life upon his truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Help us to walk with you. Help us to obey you. Help us to represent you, to represent Christ here on this earth as salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen.